This morning, we come to Lecture 21 in our study of the great doctrines of the Bible or the doctrinal structure of the Bible. Following the general outline and the teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism. And according to the Shorter Catechism, uh, the definition of the um, justification is as follows. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Let me read this again. The Shorter Catechism, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, in our last study, we, can, we began the topic of salvation, and we spent our time considering, the last part of our time especially, considering the how of salvation, how we are saved. Now, we want to go on in the consideration of salvation. In Romans 1.16, Romans 1.16, those of you who have done the Roman studies will spend a lot of time on this, but it's worth constantly reminding ourselves of the scope of this verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the 17th verse, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The 16th verse again, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, an examination will show us that the word salvation here, and as it is usually used throughout the um, New Testament, is of wider scope than the way we commonly um, use the word salvation today. Now, today we usually use the word salvation to mean those benefits which come to us as having uh, a man having received those benefits, which comes to us as soon as we accept Christ as our Savior. That's the way we usually use it today. We say, are you saved? Uh, this is perfectly all right. It's not wrong. It's used this way someplace in Scripture, and it uh, has meaning. But it also has a danger in limiting our understanding of the wealth uh, that we receive with what we uh, have when we are saved, when we have accepted Christ as our Savior. Because when I say, uh, are you saved, I really am talking about something in the past, usually. I mean, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Um, have you passed from death to life? And if I'm more instructed, I mean, are you justified? This is the way it's usually used in, in our generation, in the way we talk, and especially in evangelism. 
accept Christ as your Savior and be saved. And the idea is this usually this concept of what you receive the moment you accept Christ. And as I say, this is all right. But we mustn't be poor at this point. Because in the scripture, the word salvation, and here where we read it here, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. The word here is much wider than merely our justification. Our word, the word salvation here includes everything that a man receives on the basis of Christ's finished work when he has by faith accepted uh, this gift of God work of Christ. So in the scripture, salvation does not just have a, a, a past idea, but salvation has a present idea and a future idea. So it's perfectly proper to say, I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. Or sometimes described as the three aspects of salvation. Now, today, and the, the three aspects of salvation three, follow the three tenses, past, present, and future. So, the scripture use of salvation, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, this is all that which comes to us when we accept Christ as Savior. And I think very often, especially in our generations, generation, we're apt to be poor in the comprehension of all, what the all includes. We're apt to be poor at this particular place. Now today, we begin to consider the first of these tenses, the first of these things. I have said the past, present, and future. The word, the scripture use of the word salvation is all that which we receive, which comes to us when we accept Christ as Savior. And today we're thinking specifically of the first of these. And that is the past, the past aspect of salvation. Now, let us quickly say, though we will speak of it much more before we're finished, that all the aspects of salvation, all man receives when he accepts Christ as Savior in the past, present, and the future. I'll, I'll explain more what I mean by the past in a little bit. It is all on the base of Christ's finished work in history. We cannot say this too many times, and this would always be so, but it's doubly true in our own generation. We must say it over and over and over again, because the other ideas which just surround us on every side creep in upon us, unless we are very careful. So all that which a man receives under the term salvation is on the basis of the finished work of Christ in history. It is something that is finished. It includes his active obedience and his passive obedience. But in both cases, by the time he died on the cross, in a, a history that is passed to us, the work was done. So all the aspects of salvation are on the basis of the finished work of Christ in history. And equally, all of them are through the instrumentality of faith. Now, if we can grind this, these two words into our thinking so it's an, just absolutely automatic, we will be safe, much theological uh, headache. 
the word ground and the word instrument, the word ground and the word instrument, the word ground and the word instrument. And the ground is the finished work of Christ. The instrument is faith. Don't get them confused. Now, we'll speak more of this, too, in detail, but I'm just giving you something to begin with here. So all the aspects of salvation are on the single ground of Christ's finished work. And all are on the, we receive them all upon the instrumentality of faith. The instrument by which we have them is faith. The ground is the finished work of Christ. Now beginning to speak of the past, definitely the past aspect of salvation. And by, when I use the word past, I mean it is past to the Christian. I don't mean that it's past in an abstract sense or something like this. It is past individually to the Christian. Now, we have discussed last week carefully what it means to be a Christian. So, I assume that lecture is, uh, not last week, two weeks ago, I guess it was, but I assume that is clearly in our mind. When I use the word Christian here, I am using the word Christian in the biblical sense, and in no less sense. It is not passed to the man merely who has had an infant baptism. It is not passed merely to a man who is in a certain relationship to any kind of an organization, even a good organization even the best church. It is not passed to a man merely who sits under the umbrella of Christendom. It is not passed to a man who merely fits into his own ideas of what a Christian is. It is passed to the man who is a biblical Christian, the man who has really accepted Christ as his Savior in this whole tremendous uh, emphasis that we find in the... Um, in the scripture in which we dealt with, I trust, with uh, some completeness and clarity last week. I hope it's all clear in our mind, and of course, I doubly hope then that all of us have walked by that way, and we are Christian. All of us who listen to the tape, all of us in this room, I trust that is so. But even if this is not so, and there is someone who has not yet become a biblical Christian, at least this it seems to me now, should be able to be assumed, and that is you understand what a biblical Christian is. And what I'm talking about today is that justification is passed to the man who is the biblical Christian. That's passed. Now that it can be passed 50 years ago. It can be passed last week when you heard the message or two weeks ago on how to become a Christian. It can be passed five minutes ago if since you have entered this room you have accepted Christ as your Savior. But whether it is passed 50 years ago or passed five minutes ago, that isn't the point. It's past tense if you have accepted Christ as your Savior. Now, the past aspect of salvation centers in the concept of Justification. That's what we're studying this morning. This morning is justification. The present aspects of salvation, which we will be studying in the for quite a time now, in these lectures. After after today's lecture, we'll turn to the present aspects of salvation. 
fall into certain classifications. The first one is the new relationship which the Christian has with each of the three members of the Trinity. The Bible does not allow us to have a dead theology if we really listen to it. It isn't just a theological concept. There is a present aspect of salvation which is a new relationship with each of the three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It is present not in the sense that it begins existentially at every present moment, however. These things, this new relationship, if I am a Christian, began when I was justified. But they are continuing in the sense that they are also present. Now, justification, as we'll see, is quite a different thing. Justification is absolutely past. These things are past in the sense that they began in the past, if I accept Christ as my Savior, but they are present. Present relationship with the Father, the present relationship with the Son, the present relationship with the Holy Spirit. However, there's another whole dimension of a, the present of the new relationship, and that is the brotherhood of believers. That if I have accepted Christ as my Savior, there is the relationship among other two other Christians and among other Christians, which was not true before my salvation. And then there's the whole study of sanctification, which is a present uh, aspect of salvation. And then there's the future aspects of salvation, which we will just pass by this morning with one word, glorification. Now we come back, however, to the past aspect, which is our interest today. The absolutely past aspect uh, of salvation, if I am a Christian. And if you open your Bibles to Romans 5, Romans 5, 1. And as I've pointed out many times, the tenses here are overwhelmingly important and they're masked unhappily in the King James translation. But the proper, the proper way to read this may not be smooth English, may not be literature now, but it's, but it's what it says, what God is telling us here is as follows. Therefore, being justified in the past by faith, we have peace in the present with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access in the present by faith, and so on. Therefore, being justified in the past by faith, we have peace in the present with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have in the present access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. They're all presents. Concept is present here. But they, it turns upon the pivot of a past thing. Therefore, being justified in the faith by, in the past, we have peace with God in the present. The, the therefore is overwhelmingly central. If you haven't been justified in the faith, by faith in the past, you do not have peace with God in the present and present, and you do not have access to God. The present aspect, the present aspect of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and the present access by faith, 
only is if there is that which is past. In the sense of aorist tense, finality, completion. If I have if I have been justified in the past by faith, I have in the present access. If I have not been justified in the past by faith, I do not have present access. Now, as I've said, the past may be a long time ago or a short time ago. It doesn't matter, but it's got to be a past thing. Now, in 5.2, we have access by faith in the present. When it says in the first verse, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we as 20th century people uh, and often as evangelicals who really haven't been taught very carefully immediately think it means the psychological peace I have in my heart and mind. It is not what it means, basically. Now, we who are trained uh, post-Freud immediately think a psychological peace. But that's not its initial character. That isn't what he's talking about here, basically. He is talking about it, but not as the root thing. The basic thing is God's being at peace with me. And this is what is so absolutely lost in our generation, in the general thinking of men. God is holy. And there's no use, there's no use suspecting anything but a psychological trick of having peace in my heart, unless, first of all, the Holy God is at peace with me. If he is not at peace with me, any peace I have is only a religious trick, which could be expressed in Christian terminology or non-Christian terminology, and it wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. But in the Christian framework, in the presence of the God who is holy and who demands perfection, as we shall see in a moment. If there is to be real peace in my heart, it must be rooted on, first of all, the God who is holy being at peace with me. The problem, as I look across the world, lost world, is not to give men peace. The problem is that God would be at peace with them, objectively. Now, justification deals with this. Justification deals with God being at peace with me. And if God is at peace with me, I can have peace in my heart. Not as a psychological trick, but as a reality. And if God is at peace with me and has come to peace with me in the past, then in the present, he indeed is still at peace with me, And I have a present access. Now, certainly those of us who have been studying in these areas will immediately be sensitive that the modern theology never deals in this area. It knows nothing about it. Just nothing about it. And it's simply because it has lost the concept of a holy God. It has a different kind of a God, so these things are lost. And with them are lost not just an abstract orthodoxy, but true peace true peace. So therefore, in the, the problem is God's being at peace with me, the rebel. 
Now, I'll read through. I wasn't sure how to approach this and get it together smoothly, and I think I've chosen the method which I think is best. But what I'm going to do anyway is to, first of all, read through the Confession of Faith and expound it a little bit as I go along, and the longer catechism questions that deal on justification, expound them as I go along, and then break it down into what I think will be a structure you can understand, perhaps, and remember a bit easier. The Confession, Chapter 11 of Justification. Those whom God effectually called, he also freely justified. Freely here is gratis, just as it is in Scripture. Those whom God effectually called, he also justified gratis. Then some negatives, which are overwhelmingly important. And they, of course, were facing basically not liberal uh, theology at all, but Roman Catholicism on one hand and humanism in the form of Arminianism on the other. And, of course, therefore, their words are into this situation in which they were. But so there's some negatives. First, not by infusing righteousness into them. Now, in saying this, they've said the Roman Catholics are wrong. Because Roman Catholic theology is basically at this point that justification is an infused righteousness. That God puts righteousness in us. And then, of course, you can see how this connects with their whole humanistic theology. Not by infusing righteousness unto the, into them, into them, into them, you see, not into them, but by pardoning their sins. So it's a very different thing. Roman Catholicism, in its classic theology, classic theology now, not its modern theology, sees justification as an infusing, infusing of righteousness into them. They say quite rightly, as we shall see from Scripture, no, justification is the pardoning of the individual sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteousness, as righteous and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. So therefore, as the Bible does make overwhelmingly plain, on the basis of justification, we aren't just infused with something that then has to work out and suffer and all the rest, but we are actually accepted, past tense, or momentarily, once for all. We are accepted. As already righteous, how can it be? Well, this is the wonder of the biblical teaching of justification. It should never be a dead theology. It should be. It should really make us dance and sing with absolute joy and excitement. It is, this is into the relationship of we are already saints to the saints who are at Rome. How? How can this be? Not by not for anything wrought in them, nor or done by them. And of course, as we shall see, this is impossible because God demands perfection. So if God is going to accept us in our person on the basis of what we do, it would never happen because never in this life do we reach the place even after we're Christians where it could happen. Because he would demand perfection. The threshold is too high. 
but for Christ's sake alone. And here comes the great force, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. And please understand what you're reading here. This says goodbye to Kierkegaard. Now, Kierkegaard maybe wouldn't have been in this classification, but himself personally, that's between him and God. But certainly all the Kierkegaardian theology has suddenly said goodbye to. The whole modern concept of faith in faith is gone. And that's what the scripture teaches. But these men understood this. So it's true they were speaking into the humanism of their own day, but it speaks into the humanism of our own day also. If we read these things with understanding, we read that having sprung from Scripture, not that we believe every, not that we have to agree with every word these men write, because they would be the first ones to insist that the only real authority is the Scriptures. Yet, nevertheless, we understand these things are timeless, because they speak into the situation as it is, from the fall of man onward. So I always become a little scratchy when people tell me how, how these things don't talk to our generation. Maybe they, if they don't talk to them, it's our fault. I don't mean we should get up and read this to them. But the ideas are the same. Not by, let me start again, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself as their righteousness, or any other evangelical obedience as their righteousness. I've changed the order a little bit to get the force here. Our righteousness is not our faith. Faith has no value in this sense. Then faith becomes another form of work. Nor any evangelical obedience. I love this word, evangelical obedience. Not the natural fruit that flows from being a Christian. This isn't the ground of our righteousness. Well, then what? But by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. Now, I ask you to remember our study on the active and passive obedience of Christ. But by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of of Christ unto them. Just not only you see his death on the cross, but his keeping the law. How do we share in this? They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith. The faith is the instrument. Which faith they have not of themselves. It is a gift of God. So here you have the ground is only the work of Christ, and they're very careful to say what it's not. And that speaks to our generation as well as their own generation. And then the instrument is faith. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified but ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Now here we have the faith 
here we're told, the faith is not to be dead faith. John, would you go out? I don't know who these people are, but would you kindly tell Deborah they're not to be brought in the lecture? If you would be sure, though. Thank you. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. And it tells what the faith rests on. Receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. But while it says here, and this is a word for those who always equate in their minds orthodoxy and dead orthodoxy. They're not the same thing. These men were very aware of the dilemma of dead orthodoxy, and they say faith is the alone instrument of justification, but it's never to be a dead thing. If there's a living faith, a real faith, it says, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. In other words, if there is faith, there will be fruit that follows from it. There will be results that follow from it. And so it isn't just a dead faith, you see. So they're very careful here guarding against a different area of danger. The faith is the receiving and resting on Christ is the alone instrument of justification. But if it's real faith, it's a living faith. It's a living faith. And if you know some of the names of the men who were on the, in the Westminster Assembly, you understand they understood this very well. They, it wasn't a, uh, a dead faith at all they were uh, speaking about and after. The third section. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are thus justified. So the debt is completely discharged if we are justified. And did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his father's justice in their behalf. Now here you have the here you you the light dawns if we had never heard before and what it, what all this in, is involved in, it's all involved in the legal aspect of the character of God. Very often we say here that our relationship to God is is never primarily legal. And it's never to be mechanical at all, but primarily it is to be personal, and that's absolutely so. So the primary relationship with God is never to be legal, but it doesn't mean there isn't a legal relationship. Now, there's no mechanical relationship, if it's truly biblical, but there is a legal relationship. But the legal, legal relationship is not to be the primary relationship. It's to be a personal relationship. But saying it's a personal relationship is not to make us forget that there is a legal relationship. God is a judge. God exists. God is holy. There is a law of the universe. It is the character of God. And God is judge. Consequently, if we have any sensibility at all, and this is bound up in men's, men's instinctive feeling of before God, of, of some feeling, not just of guilt feelings, but of guilt, if we have any sensibility at all, we have a great question. What, where do I stand before this God who is judge? Where do I stand before this God who is a character and who must judge me because he is God and who will judge me because he is God? 
Where do I stand before the law of the universe when I've broken it? Not once, twice, but hundreds of times. Internally, externally, omission, commission. Things of the spirit, things of the flesh. I've broken this law in all the strata. Then what's my relationship to God? In this legal relationship, and we mustn't be scared of the word legal. There's a bad legalism, but also there is a bad non-legalism. And modern theology has a bad non-legalism. It denies God as the judge. It denies God the right to judge, finally. Whether it's in the flood or in the sword of Joshua or whether it's in hell. But there, God is a judge. God, there is this legal aspect. And so it says here, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt. There is a debt, a debt of guilt. Of all those who are thus justified, and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction of his Father's justice in their behalf. Satisfaction. Of course, related to the scripture words, propitiation, covering, substitution, redemption. Words that have almost become a swear word in our generation to a religion that uses Christian terminology to teach another religion, but not in scripture. They're beautiful words. They're wonderful words. They're our hope and our stay. They're all we have to rest upon. Yet inasmuch as it was given, as he was, uh, was given by the Father for them, so far the Father sent the Son, it's not the Son against the Father. Yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of the sinners, of sinners. So the Father has sent the Son, and as the sinner is justified, the true sinner, the man who is truly man, and who is revolted against God, no matter who this man is, when he is justified, the exact justice And the rich grace of God are both exhibited. Or we would say more probably in our own generation, the, um, the holiness of God and the love of God are both beautifully exhibited. So it's perfectly true that this is so on the cross. But while it's true that this is so on the cross, it is also quite properly pointed out here to be beautifully true in the justification of the individual sinner. So when I stand as a sinner before God, yet justified, there is exhibited here the holiness of God, but the love of God. So every Christian, in his justification, is a manifestation, an exhibition, 
before angels and before men of the flaming holiness of God and yet the wonder of his love. It's no wonder that Satan hits at this point and tries to destroy it and make it something less. Before the angels and before men, the individual Christian justified, declared just by God as the judge is a manifestation an exhibition of the exact justice but also the rich grace of God. Then I'll just read sections 4, 5, and 6 but not deal with them today so much because, well, yes, this fourth I will, sorry. 4. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. Now, if you know anything about the existential problem of history, you say, why, this is today. These fellows must have written this, written this last night in some cafe table. These fellows are in Paris and they're talking into the existential situation. They're talking here about the validity of history. So it says, it is perfectly true. From all eternity was the decree to justify the elect. And it's perfectly true, Christ in the fullness of time, that is at a certain point of history, died for their sins and rise for their justification. Yet nevertheless, the individual's not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ to them. So history's real. Now we understand why the Bible-believing Christian could produce, just as the Bible-believing Christian has the reality of a cause and effect that is real in the scriptural teaching. The Christian has a history that is real. So even in this supreme thing, of the fact that God has from all eternity decreed to justify all the elect and even though Christ died in history and the work is so completely finished that it's once for all, yet nevertheless, yet nevertheless, man is not justified until the individual accepts Christ as his Savior. It is, history is completely valid. God has made history and works into that history. History has meaning. Nothing is theater. It is not to you. It is the opposite of the dream of God. If it is true at this case, how much more flamingly so as it is in the rest of history. And now I'll just read 5 and 6 because really we deal with this later. But uh, just to complete the chapter. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they, humbly, until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. The emphasis here, you can't be lost again, yet nevertheless, this does not nullify the very real effects of sin in the Christian's present life. Six, 
The justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all, all these respects, in all these respects, all the above respects we've talked about, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Here you have the emphasis on the unity of the covenant, which we spend a lot of time. Now, longer catechism, 69 through 73. What is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? What is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? Now, the invisible church means the true church, the man who has truly accepted Christ as his Savior, in contrast to merely the visible church. Answer. The communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ. Now, notice here is communication, which the members of the invisible church have with Christ. Here's our whole emphasis as we have it here and speak it here into our 20th century on communication. Communion. There is to be a communion. There is a communication. It isn't just a bare theological concept. And while there are these tremendous, wonderful, really wonderful legal aspects, it doesn't end with the legal aspects. There is communion. There is communication. Is the partaking of the virtue of his mediation, the virtue of his mediation. We in our 20th century would say the value of his mediation. It's the virtue. Yes, it's a good word. But today, surely, we would speak in the is the infinite value of his mediation. So, we who are true Christians partake in the value, the infinite value of his mediation, the virtue of his mediation, in their justification. That's the first thing. Adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in their life manifest their union with him. And we'll deal more with the union with him later. But this is the beginning of this speaking of something of more than justification, speaking of what we spoke of uh, in, under thinking of Romans 1.16, 20 minutes ago, uh, of the full aspect of salvation. The communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in their life manifest their union with him. Their union with him. It's not a dead old thing. It shouldn't be allowed to be a dead thing. There's no room for dead branches here. They should all be green with the beautiful green of the malaise in the early spring. It should be a perpetual spring in our hearts and in our thinking. Constant greenness. Seventy. What is justification? Now to justification. Answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Now the important thing here is the word act. We'll spend more time on that. That's why it is so totally past. It's an act. In the Greek, it would be aorist, just as it is in Romans 5. It's an act. And I'll simply say in passing here, for completeness, but deal with it more later, it's an act in contrast to a continuing state or a process. It's an act in contrast to a continuing state or a process. Uh, adoption, our relationship to the Father, for example, is a continuing state. Our mystical union with Christ is a continuing state that begins with, with when the moment when we accept Christ as our Savior, and then it continues. But this is an act. 
an act that is just as much an act in history as the death of Christ in history, a once-for-all thing. Justification, an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which he pardoneth all their sin, accepteth and counteth their persons righteous in his sight. The beauty, the beautiful thing of the passive and active obedience of Christ. So here is an act of God's free grace, and it's a, his act is a judge. Unto sinners. The justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which he pardoneth all their sin, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, the two aspects of negation, not for anything wrought in them and not for that done by them. God declares us justified not on the basis of the fruit which we will have in Christ after we are saved, not even that, certainly, and not by that done by us, either past, present, or future, but only, one, for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them, So the only base is the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ, which we have by it being imputed to us, and received by faith alone. And received by faith alone. So it is not of anything wrought in us, not anything we do, but, upon, but only for, and this word for is the grounds, you see. Not only for the perfect, but only for, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. The only instrument is faith. 71. How is justification an act of God's free grace? Answer. Although Christ, by his obedience and death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction of God's justice in the behalf of them that are justified, yet, inasmuch as God accepteth the satisfaction for a surety, here you have the, this is a legal term, which he might have demanded of them, in other words, all that he demanded of Christ, he could have demanded of us, and of course, will be demanded in judgment from the lost man. It's just. There's justice here. But there's something else. There is the love of God. And did provide this surety, his only son, imputing his righteousness to them. Here is the imputing. Again, we'll look at that as next hour and requiring nothing of them, a lovely phrase, surely, it's a bouquet, and requiring nothing of them, when you get beaten down, and if you are subject to guilt feelings, and you're torn apart by guilt feelings, remembering God requires nothing of us for, our ju for their justification. Isn't that beautiful? There's no Christian that doesn't have his storms. And when it's just... Suddenly, the waves break over our ship until it seems to sink, almost. The understanding of this phrase, it wouldn't be bad to memorize it, requiring nothing of them for their justification but faith. 
which also is gift, their justification is to them of free grace. So, nothing is required of us. Christ, God himself, has provided the surety, and that surety is not an abstraction. It is a person. It is the second person of the Trinity, his only son. As the scripture says in one place, the son of his love. 72. What is justifying faith? Of course, this is an overwhelming question. If, I, if the instrument is faith, what is it? Answer. 72. What is justifying faith? Answer. Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God. Now, to them, the Word of God was the Bible. It isn't the 20th century idea of the Word separated from the Bible. Whereby he, being convinced of, their, of his sin and misery, and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition. These words, these people know how to write English. The disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition. What does that mean? Here is the whole of our infinite guilt, the chasm of our infinite guilt. And you could take the whole created universe and drop it into that hole and it wouldn't even touch the bottom. It wouldn't even touch the bottom. If we consider here the infinity of the judge, It is the infinitely holy God against whom I sin. People often say to me, but Mr. Schaefer, how can a man be sent to hell for eternity for 70 years of living, even if it's the wickedest living you can imagine? But this always misses the whole point of the tremendousness of the fact that we do live in a moral universe. And that is, the value of our guilt rests upon the realization against, of the one against whom we have sinned. I have sinned against the infinitely holy God, and my chasm is infinite. And if the whole created universe, whatever the universe is, and certainly we don't know yet, but if you could take the whole universe and stretch out its light years, be it expanding or steady state, be it finite or an infinite universe under the terminology of the new physics. Be it ten times more wonderful or a thousand times more wonderful than you will yet dream. Stretch it out to the nth degree and to the nth power. You could take it all and drop it into the chasm of my infinite guilt, a single man. and would have no possibility of filling the chasm. Because everything except God himself is finite and limited. When science talks about an infinite number of infinites in the new mathematics, when science talks new, the, when the new mathematics speaks of an infinite number of infinites, when the science talks about an infinite universe or a finite universe, this doesn't touch on this problem at all. It is all on this side of the screen. 
Only God is infinite. Only the Creator is infinite. All else is finite. And therefore, you could take the whole created universe, whatever the word universe means, in the sight of God, in all that he's created, and it could not atone for a single sin. When I understand this, I bow my head and say thank you for justification. As soon as this is nicked away at a single point, Christianity is deformed and eventually must become an abomination and a delusion. And the whole modern theology is just that. It strikes back at God himself and his person. The disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not theirs. It isn't saying that here's creation in a, a rhino nibir kind of a sense of being limited and the tension is between infinity and finiteness. This isn't it. It's not talking about this. It's talking about moral guilt against a judge. That's why these legal aspects are so important. And a single sinner, not all sinners, but me, and all creation is not enough to meet this. Must, the legal aspect is here. The judge is here. The law of the universe is involved here. The disability in himself and all other creatures, all other created things, to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for the pardon of sin. Let me start back and read it again. What is the question? 72. What is justifying faith? What is this instrument whereby I accept the finished work of Christ? Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and, wor and Word of God. Then this. Whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery, and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition not only assenteth to the truth of the uh, promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ in his righteousness therein held forth. In other words, it isn't just an intellectual thing. Now, we here in this place, we put our emphasis upon the intellectualness of it, the rationality of it. But we must always remember, and surely I hope we always stress this here too, it is not merely an intellectual thing. It is, I say, this is true. That's why... Here, in working into the 20th century, I put such emphasis upon, do you understand it's true? Do you understand God exists? Do you understand Jesus is God? Do you understand you are the guilty sinner in a truly moral sense? Do you understand Jesus died in history? Do you understand this? This is knowledge. And the first step of evangelical faith is saying it is true. But I can say it's true without accepting Christ as Savior on that. That's what it's saying. You cannot accept Christ as Savior without saying it is true. Then it's only one more psychological trick. There's no use using being evangelistic unless you emphasize first you must have an 
understand something and you must acknowledge its truth and the truthfulness in those tremendous modern words of brute facts, propositional truth, objective truth, however we want to express it. It is true, it is true, it is true. I must see it is true. But after I've seen it's true, on the basis of the promises of God, I must accept it for myself. And here I step across the line. It is the, not only just saying it is true, but as it's expressed here, receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin, and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. God has made these promises. The promise is, here is something that can will wear in. You will be accepted. And accounted righteous, accounted is a legal term again. You will be. You, old man, who is the rebel. You who stand on the border of the flaming fire of hell. 